0: Today, I am super excited to bring to you in the Burnout Expert podcast, a guest who has gone through burnout themselves. They are the other side of the pond from me. They're in Australia. We are speaking with Simon, who is a husband and a father. He is based in Queensland in the Sunshine Coast. And he is also the host of the Mindful Men podcast. I highly recommend that you listen to it. I've been listening to a couple of episodes before Simon came on today. And I do know that many of you in my audience will definitely benefit from his podcast. He is the founder of Mindful Men, and which is a therapy practice that is dedicated to men's health and well-being. Simon's passion for mental health does come from living with obsession, obsessive compulsive disorder, depression, anxiety, and burnout throughout the last 30 years. 2023 marks 11 years since Simon first opened up about his mental illness and he started to his healing journey in, um, he started his healing journey, um, like 11 years ago when he first started opening up. In 2021, Simon established Mindful Men's social media, so you guys definitely have to check that out, and he is sharing all of his lived experiences of mental illness um, to really inspire others, let you know that you're not alone, and let you know how to navigate it. So with that being said, thank you so much for being here today, Simon.
1: Andy, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to, to be here and share my story, and hopefully it you know help somebody out there who's listening to maybe checking with themselves and and get help if they need to. So yeah, really excited to be here.
0: Absolutely. So let's dive in. If you would like, I will give you a complete stage and you can let everybody know your burnout story.
1: Yeah, absolutely. and and feel free to chime in as well. Sometimes it's nice to have a a chat about mental health and and what it looks like in all its glory. But um, I was, I'll, I'll paint a bit of a picture because it is a long story. So I'll try and be as short as possible. So we're talking about middle of 2020. Um, COVID had, you know, running rampant across the world. Um, and we were right in the middle of our first COVID lockdown. So in Australia, we had a lot of lockdowns. And they would go for four, five, six months, depending on where you were in Australia. Um, And what a lockdown means for anybody who didn't experience a lockdown was basically you had to stay at home and you had to work from home. If you had kids that were school age, you had to to try and help them do their study as well. Um, We weren't in that boat. My wife and I, we had a a brand new bub. So our daughter was born in the 2019 December. um, And we also had a toddler. He was three, four years old at the time. So, my wife was doing that kind of, you know, looking after the kids, and I was working a full time job online. So, we moved to Zoom um, pretty much. And I was also studying a part time master's degree in social work as well. Um, In the midst of all that, we were, you know, not exercising as much as we used to. So, the gyms had closed. So, I'd stopped going to the gym. Um, trying to do a bit of running and, and walking around our local park because we're allowed to go to the local park and do that kind of thing. Um, but I also discovered this, or I was experiencing this mysterious back pain that I couldn't quite put my you know, finger on. I, I put it down to a dodgy lounge room chair that I was using as a, as a makeshift, makeshift office. But you know I went to do all the st- the uh, scans and x-rays and 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 the specialist couldn't identify what it was. and it's it's interesting because when I did recover from burnout several months later, the back pain disappeared. So this was my first introduction, and you know, I guess into the physical being impacted by the mental aspects of us as well. Um so that's kind of painting the picture of what I was doing in that particular you know moment in time, so the middle of twenty twenty. And as you alluded to, I've got 30 years lived experience of mental illness as well. So I've lived with obsessive compulsive disorder since I was eight years old. Um, lots of different, you know, times of depression and, and anxiety comes along with that as well. And so I was also trying to manage this during COVID lockdowns. And I remember at one point, you know, we'd, we'd watch the daily news updates of, of COVID and, and the premier and then the prime minister would also be selling, telling us these are the daily deaths, these are the daily hospitalizations. Um, this is what you can do this is what you can't do and and it was like a yo-yo so we'd have you know different levels of lockdown as well so you know going from you can go 10 kilometers from your house to five kilometers you can only go to the shops to do this and it's interesting I'm not sure if you you saw it on the news over there but Australia had a a toilet paper shortage during COVID everyone was hoarding toilet paper and water (laughs) bottles yeah, all that type of stuff. And, and I remember one day I went to five different grocery stores and this is unheard of in Australia, five different grocery stores to find some toilet paper and I came home with some boxes of tissues and and some wet wipes and so forth. So it was an interesting time and it got to a point just for my own mental health that I had to turn off the TV and not tune into the daily updates and just try to, to navigate lockdown without any outside influences as well. So it was pretty full on time. But burnout for me isn't just a, a reflection on COVID. It's a, it's a reflection on probably the 30 years prior to that as well. Because for anyone who's not familiar with burnout, it is a slow, long process of getting to burnout. It's, it's like burning the candles for years, and you know, or at least months. It's not something that just pops up and you you burnt out. It happens over a long time. Um, I guess... A lot of people think about burnout as a workplace issue and and a lot of my burnout was related to work so um you know i'm not a first responder or anything like that i, I worked 15 years in the public service so i had a white collar job um, and my last job in the public service before i started mindful men was working in the what's called the national disability insurance scheme here over in the in, in australia and it's essentially a a you know welfare type uh you know program where people like myself would press approve on people's disability funding so that they can then go and access disability supports, whether it's in-home supports or therapy supports or wheelchairs, beds, whatever it is. And it was a high key performance indicator environment. so a high KPI environment. We had to do a lot of work in short periods of time and repetitively. So it was like a conveyor belt of public service work. You press approve on one thing, the next thing would be there waiting for you to you know to, to start working on it. And so you never really had a reprieve. And I did that for four years and and it was also a little bit of a toxic environment as well. so it was driven by I guess senior managers who would you know put a lot of pressure on on the workers to do the jobs and the workers would saying, look, I'm getting tired, I'm getting stressed, this is too much to do, too little staff and they would just wouldn't listen. And it's interesting because I heard burnout probably for the first time. I heard someone mention burnout for the first time in that workplace. And I'm like, what's burnout? Never really heard of burnout. You know. And you know, I've been managing my own mental health through this process, but I didn't hear about, you know, know what about burnout was. I thought it was like a cop-out thing. Like, oh, they just don't feel like doing their work or they're, yeah. So they're just saying I'm burnt out, kind of like one of those throwaway lines until I actually experienced it and then I'm like wow this is what burnout is and and you know it started with me just getting slower on doing my job you know I was I was experiencing a lot of different types of symptoms like regular headaches fatigue helplessness I became really cynical in the workplace like and you know I think there was some granting to this like where I was trying to to implement some some Uh, agency wide change in certain processes. And I just felt like nobody would listen to what I was trying to say. I was saying, look, we can do this particular job better or more efficiently, or we actually need some more processes in place to help more people understand this work. And it just felt like my suggestions were falling on deaf ears, on deaf ears. And, and so this became, I just started feeling angry, and so I lost motivation. I lost satisfaction in my job. I felt detached from my position. I remember being in meetings with clients where, and this is the, these are the common kind of meetings where I'd pride myself on being right in the moment and hearing their stories. I remember being in meetings and I'm of like five or 10 minutes went past. I'm like, I have no idea what happened in those last five or 10 minutes. And I'm the one chairing the meeting. Mm. I'm the, I'm I'm the person there who's who's holding space for everybody, and I just felt like, what's going on? And and so this, these were like little alarm bells were starting to go off, but I was kind of pushing them aside. Um, so other things like procrastination, I was quick to anger, quick to frustration, and a lot of the time, and this is also linked to my mental health story, is I was drinking a lot of alcohol to cope. And so, like, you get to the end of the night or the weekend, and I would drink. And this is also part of calming my OCD the the thoughts, the racing thoughts in my mind, I would drink to just feel normal and feel less stressed. Um, and then that brings about its, its own issues as well. And so this is, this all came to a head with, I guess a meeting with my manager and she was starting to notice that my workloads were you know becoming delayed more frequently and, and, to some degree that was was warranted because I worked with you know with other public servants in the child protection system. and so two government agencies working together was very difficult to navigate that because we've got all got our own caseloads and our child protection workers they're usually under the pump as well. they've got huge caseloads and not enough staff to to work in that area. So there was often delays in my kind of work. Um, compared to the next person next to me who didn't work with child protection people, and so I'd you'd often be compared in these environments. Why is your work so much slower than somebody's who's sitting next to you, even though you're doing essentially the same type of role? And and this frustrated me as well. And anyway, it came to a, a meeting with my my manager, and, and we're just talking about my caseload. She wasn't, you know, having a go at me or anything like that, but it did come up, and and, and I essentially just burst out crying. And this is the first time I did this in the workplace. I just burst out crying, and and they're like, "What's wrong?" And and you know, meanwhile, I'm at home. They're in the office because there was some people in the office, so we weren't even in physically in the same location. And I just said, "I can't keep doing this anymore. Like I'm, I am mentally, physically, emotionally spent." And so I went to the doctor, and I'm I'm so grateful that I went to this particular doctor because I've got two doctors, and one of them. He specializes in men's mental health and mental health generally. And the other's more of a family doctor um, who, who doesn't specialize in mental health. And I, I'm glad I went to the, the one that specialized in mental health because he had experienced burnout previously. And he says, Simon, you're, everything you're saying, what's going on, and you know, your lifestyle as well with the working and the family and the studying as well and your mental health history, these are all signs of burnout. And I'm like, I thought, I, I've never, I'm, I'm not burning out. Like I'm a guy, like guys don't burn out. Like I've been doing this forever. Why am I, why is this year any different to any other year? And that's when he showed, you know, he, he talked me through what the symptoms look like. And that slow burn, it's this prolonged chronic stress that can lead to burnout. And so now I had a name for it. And I went back to work and said, look, the doctor's given me two weeks off. And he said, "I'm I'm burnt out," and so you know, my workplace were pretty good with that. Fortunately, because I had a 15 year career, I had a lot of sick leave available to me that had been banking and banking and banking. So I took that two two weeks, and then it got to the end of that two weeks. I'm like, I can't go back. Like I can't go back there yet. I'm not ready. Um, And I'm and you know, these two weeks were me pretty much just sitting on the couch because I had no energy to do anything else. You know, had no joy in life. I was stuck in the biggest this hole of despair, essentially. And so I went back to the doctor, and he said, "All right, well, maybe we need to to increase this to to three or four months." And fortunately, I had the sick leave available, and and that's what I did. I, I rang work, and I said, "My doctor's given me a certificate for three months, four months. I'll see you then." And 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 work were pretty good with it at that stage. If I had done that twelve months earlier, there would have been a lot of serious discussions had and it it coincided with the change of management which i was really fortunate about timing is timing is everything in the mental health world so um, this was just really good timing for me and so i um my doctor hooked me up in australia We get access to what's called a mental health treatment plan which gives you subsidized psychology and counseling sessions for mental health um and i lined up with a, a social worker a mental health social worker and i picked a social worker because in my mental health story i'd been to psychologists psychiatrists counselors coaches probably um <laughs> health gurus you name it i've done it and i because i was studying social work at the time i just understood the language a lot better and the and you know i love being a social worker now and i love my social work studies so just talking the language was so much more helpful but i found a social worker who had experience in burnout and also it was interesting she also had experience working in the public service Good. and and the, the public service agency that she worked for wasn't the same as mine, but it was one that my wife worked for. So I knew, and it was very similar It was in that welfare space. There was a lot of KPIs. There was a lot of high stress. And so I thought this is going to be a great connection. And, and yeah, we, so we started working with each other, a lot of talk therapy and through that, what I identified was that I had no joy in my life and and again i i i don't usually cry in front of people but i burst out in tears several times with her just saying like i'm just spent i'm so down and you know i was pro- i was depressed as well and and it was just i was so thankful for that 3 to 4 months off where i could just just let it all out and from there start i guess a journey into discovery first discovering mindfulness so you know i've got mindful men as my platform um, so that's where I first discovered mindfulness, and then it's been a. It took six months to get back to work, mm-hmm. and I had a graduated return to work. So when I went back to the office, I did, wasn't doing full time work. I was doing initially for the first two weeks, it was just catching up on things like emails. But just walking through the door after three, three or four months off, I felt a lot of shame and and stigma. But interestingly, even though I talked pretty openly about my mental health, nobody in the workplace. Nobody outside of my GP, my counsellors over time, and my wife knew I lived with OCD, depression, anxiety as well. And 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 you know, now my manager knew that I was burnt out. But as part of my recovery to from work, you know, going back to work, I felt this need to share my story, and I felt the need because of the environment that we worked in, and also because I identified that. Other people that had, who I thought were on, you know, just annual leave for holidays were actually on stress leave. And I wanted to share my story, but A, to to show them, this is what burnout is. This is what the work, you know, this is what burnout looks like in our workplace. And also I use it as what I call unmasking or or demasking my mental health journey. And it was the first time I had a PowerPoint presentation and I was showing, oh, this is what burnout is. And because of the social worker in me, I'm like, I like, context is really important. And by the way, I live with OCD, depression, anxiety, and I have for probably 30 years. And that was really important to reflect on because when I think about my, my burnout, a lot of the, the things that I would do day to day in my workplace, but also at home and in study and everything I do in my life is driven by perfectionism. So, And this comes from my obsessive compulsive disorder. So often, and I'll, and I'll share a bit about what OCD is because not many people actually really understand what it is. Yeah. So obsessive compulsive disorder starts with an obsessive thought or an obsession. So it's like an intrusive thought that comes into your mind and you can't get like most people can just get that out of their head and it goes and they what get on with their life. Thoughts? It can be anything. It could be absolutely anything. And I'll, I'll give you some examples. So the very first time OCD came into my life was. I was in the schoolyard as an eight-year-old, and a student said to me, Simon, if you stop using your voice for more than a minute, you're going to lose your voice forever. Uh, okay. So this is an obsessive thought that came, and I couldn't get rid of that. Most people just laugh that off. And I laugh at that now. Like it's and I, I use humor a lot as a as a recovery tool because I think humor is really important. And I think now I think that's just the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Um, But as an eight-year-old, for some reason, I thought that was gospel. And I thought, no, I can't let that happen. And so what in OCD, what happens next is you have to perform a compulsion or a compulsive behavior. And it's compulsive because that's repetitive. It's not just once to alleviate the anxiety that comes with the obsessive thought. And so for me, that compulsion, when I had this thought of losing my voice was I've got to hum to myself. I've got to check every minute that my voice is still there and working, and it's weird because I've I, I've only reflected on this the last couple of years since I've started sharing my story. I'm like, what did I do when I was sleeping? And and I wish I knew about these people that go on these you know several years where they don't talk, like almost like monk like um, situations. And I wish I knew about these back then, but I didn't. So this is how I coped. And and then it becomes a disorder. So the D and OCD is because it's distressing. It takes a lot of your energy. It has a big impact on your life. And you're doing it as time-limited as well. So you're doing this for at least 60 minutes of your day, every single day. And so I did that for two years. And then fast forward to when I was about 13 or 14, mum and dad separated and I left with mum. And, we, and me and my little brother, I've got three, uh, three brothers, we went with mum and I became the man of the house. And so in that environment, um, I felt this need to constantly check for our safety and security. And so every night I would, lock, I would go around and lock all the house, windows, doors, I would touch things to make sure that they were just right. And this just right is really important because it leads to perfectionism. Everything has to be perfect. So I've got to go around and if I touch a door and I push on that door and it makes the right sound, like the right click or the right thud, then I feel comfortable and I can move on from that door. But if it doesn't, I'll be checking and checking and checking and checking until I get that just right moment. Same with like the drapes and the windows, they had to be pulled just right so that there couldn't be a small gap that someone could see inside of our house when we're at nighttime. And, and the fear, the obsessive thought was someone was going to break in, someone was going to steal our stuff, which we didn't have much stuff, or they're going to kidnap us or they're going to murder us. You know, and, you know, this is the northern suburbs of Adelaide I'm talking about in South Australia. It is, you know, there are pockets of dangerous areas like and but it's not like yeah other areas in the world like it is Australia is quite a safe place to that degree. Mm-hmm. Um. And so, but this is, I, in my head, I felt like it was the worst place in the world. It was the most dangerous place in the world. And this was going to happen every single night. And then, this, so there's, there are a couple of examples of the obsessive compo- thoughts and then the compulsive behaviors that over, over the years, over 30 years, have evolved and evolved and evolved. And I still do those checking behaviors today, like the the doors and the windows and all that. I don't do it as much as I did when I was 13, 14. That was for seriously every night for three to four hours in the dark. And nobody would know. Mum didn't know. My brother didn't know. And I was just doing this every night um, for the good part of, yeah, probably 10 years I was doing that in in silence. Um, But, yeah, fast forward to, to when I was 28 and my now wife essentially gave me an ultimatum. I was drinking too much. I was miserable at work. And a lot of these anxiety and depression and OCD things were coming up. And she said, you've got to go get help. You've got to go talk to someone because you're not the person that I fell in love with. Mm. And, you, you know, you essentially got to get out. And that's when I thought, you know what? I've been living with this for 20 years, these these issues. I felt like it was finally my time to go, yeah, you're right. You know, for the, the years before that, I was deflecting and I was saying, no, it's, you're the issue. Maybe you need to go get help. I'm okay. I did the man thing. I'm okay. I've got this. I'll just cut back on the beers for a few weeks. I'll go for a couple runs. I'll just try and eat a bit better. And, and I'll do that on and off. And sometimes that would work. Sometimes it wouldn't work. I'll try to be happier if that's can, if you can even do that. Um, but after when I got to 28, I realized internally that, okay, this is on me. Like it's nobody else. I've got to change. And that's when I went and saw my doctor and said, I think I've got a mental health issue and the subsequent diagnoses. So then we come back to my burnout story and I do go around in little little loops here and, and, and this perfectionism is really, is really driving me every single day. And I felt like for, for 30 years, the bar of perfection was so high, but I felt like it was a, a badge of honor. I'd jump up and I'd smack that perfectionism bar every single time. And, and something as simple as emails, for example, I'd write an email and I, for some reason, I prided myself as soon as an email come back into, into my inbox, because I was at my desk all day, I would have to check it straight away. It's like the shiny light syndrome. I would check it straight That's away. But then I would also respond pretty quickly and, and usually in depth. And, and people would often say, Simon, oh, thank you so much for that email. It's so insightful. You put a lot of effort in your emails. But what it is, is a lot of perfectionism is it was driving that because I would write it. I would rewrite it. I would rewrite it. I'd read it about 10 times. I'd make sure that the it's addressed to the right people. Um, I click send. And for most people, that's it. But for someone like me with OCD and this perfectionism thing, I had this obsessive thought that when I press send, magically the words in that email would change. And then there'd be profanities in it. It would look unprofessional. It'd be have the wrong information. It'd, it'd even have the wrong... People that I sent it to. And so I'd go to the sent box sure. and I would reread it and reread it. And, and did, you know, if I read it, hang on, when I close it, did I read it right? So then it'd open up again. And, and so, you know, I used to be able to do that really quickly because I was hiding this OCD about me. Nobody knew about it. But then over time, I just, I was basically just staring at a computer by the end of it. Yeah. And just like not even present. I was just, staring at a computer I was moving a mouse I was probably touching the keyboard but nothing was computing it was like the lights were on but nobody was home
0: and the energy that that takes to hide something like while hiding (laughs) the alcohol hiding the OCD hiding these things like I work with I've been working with first responders since 2018 and oh they're hiding that a call affected them they're hiding that You know sometimes how much certain things at work are a struggle for them like the admit like you were talking as well with where there's all this performance and what you do with your job is so personal right like you are you became a social worker because you care about the human being right first responders become first responders because they care about the human being it really doesn't actually matter what job people get in. They usually get into it because they do still care about the human beings. I have a friend as well in banking and she cares so much about her clients, but then you have these people above you that are worrying about the numbers, worrying Mm -hmm. about how that looks or, or worrying about sometimes there's these political pulls from above as well, that they have to do things a certain way. And there's times you're like, that can't even happen. Like in order for me to make that happen, I have to make other people on our team sacrifice. Like even my husband does planning and there's events here. Right now our playoffs are going on. And, but when he's doing parades or just regular events that are around, they they quite often because of the political pull of the people doing these events aren't accepting that they don't have enough officers to cover all of these man points that somebody from above calls somebody from above and then he's told you have to take other guys he has to take guys off the street when we're already short-staffed that all of these it it, it emotionally plays on you like all of this stuff really does take its toll so you were saying that you went into work and you did this presentation with them and you owned up to the OCD, you owned up to the depression and the anxiety, and you owned up to the burnout. And what was the reaction?
1: Oh, so many people come up to me afterwards. And I, I did this in my immediate office, but then I also, we had a, a footprint that expanded to a couple other office, officer, offices, you know, within an hour's drive of us or so, two hours drive. And so many people would touch base after me and say, Simon, didn't realize you're going through that. And then they were asking about the OCD and the depression. And some people were like, "Oh, now I understand why you say things the way you say things or do things the way you do things." But a few people said, "Simon, you, you, the, this burnout thing—I'm experiencing the same." Yeah. And the first thing I would say is, "Go see your GP," because
0: so you were the first in the office. Yeah. Were you the first in the office to say, "Like, hey"? But really dive in to let other people know.
1: To the just- to the big extent, yeah, yeah, to that big extent. Other people, and this is where I said, you know, before I said other people I thought were on annual leave for holidays, they they came to me afterwards and said, yeah, I was a burnt out. I was on sick leave, mm-hmm. and and so I'm like, it was so much bigger. And then it's it's interesting because at the same time. We were going through, you know, the end of, of, of one election cycle and then they were coming into a new election and and we went from Liberals to Labor. And during that period, you know, there was a lot more of union involvement in our workplace because all of a sudden there was these spot fires across Australia of people just like me burning out, you know, the high turnover turnover of staff and, and staff, you know, satisfaction across the board was through the floor, like it was just terrible. And and so more and more people, not because of my story, but more and more people, I think across the across the country through also that union process, was saying, "I'm burnt out. We're we're doing too much work with too few staff." And to the point where, you know, similar to what you were saying, is is if someone was sick, and their in their calendar was three or four meetings with clients, so that they can get their disability funding. If someone was sick, there would be some of them would come to work still because they were so worried about having to offload their work to somebody else who was also under, you know, under the pump as well. Or you'd have people in the office going, Oh, I, I can't take on any more work. So you'd have managers walking around saying, Who can take this job? Who can take this job? And some people would then start to do, and this is where some people like me are like, yeah, I can't. I didn't tell them why initially but other people are like oh yeah I'll do it I'll do it and then you just get this comparison in the office oh Simon's not pulling his weight. Yeah. And internally I'm going oh I can't I'm barely I'm holding on for dear life as it is but the person next to me might go oh yeah I'll do it I'll do it and then they and then this competition starts in the, in the in the workplace not necessarily a competition of who's better than not but internally in your mind you you start dividing and conquering and you're going who can, who's my safe people who can I vent to who can I not talk to and, and stuff like that and 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 for a lot of the time you're hiding, now the alcohol thing is an interesting one because I ne- didn't necessarily hide it. I just did it for different reasons than what people thought. So when we'd go when we'd have a work function and then this is where OCD you know plays on my mind as well is you would have a work function, I would be the guy that would drink way too much. But I would be really jovial, really happy, really different person to I am when I'm sitting at my desk. Very Mm -hmm. quiet, reserved person. So they're almost to the point where people will, and I'd start dancing. And I I was one of those drunks, essentially. happy drunk. And people would go, oh, Simon, you're so much fun, like when you've had a few drinks. And so that would encourage me. But when... And you know, drinking culture in Australia is is deeply ingrained. It starts from when you're 16. We can legally drink from 18, and and so forth. And so, if, this is for a long time I've been doing this. Yeah. And I think a lot of the time it was me trying to feel feel normal, trying to slow this, but also slow the slow the thoughts in my mind, but also feel normal, and then also feel like I can socialize. Because over t- over the years I've become more and more socially. What's the word? Quiet or reserved, not as extroverted as I used to be. I'm more of an introvert. That's the word I'm looking for. And so at work functions, I would do this. And then, literally the day after that, and my wife would see it coming a million miles away. She said, You're thinking about this, aren't you? And so, what I would do, the obsessive thought would come in my mind Did I say something that offended someone? Did I do something that offended someone? Am I going to get called into the senior manager's office on Monday morning and just get ripped into and I had this overwhelming fear of this I had this overwhelming fear of not conforming to what the workplace or society thinks that I I, someone of my stature should do and so I would obsessively so that was the obsessive thought and then the compulsive act was the compulsive replaying in my head what happened at the night to the point where Reality became distorted, and I didn't know what actually happened. What was truth? What was real? What was just my mind? Because the more and more you replay something in your head, it's kind of like the old VHS tapes. The more and more you replay them, then eventually they stop working. Mm. <laughs> or they, you know, yeah. they crack, and so you get these distorted thoughts in my in my mind. And but then a Monday would come, and nothing would happen. Yeah, and this is the thing with OCD is it tells you you have to do these things because these obsessive thoughts will come true. 100% will come true. They have never come true.
0: Right. And then that is one of the things that precipitated to your burnout.
1: Yeah. So and so it's when you were
0: recovering from your burnout, you said that you were five, six months at home and yeah. your wife is also on mat leave at this time. And so you have two small kids at home. Now, for those of those that are listening, it's like, how did that work? Because many people are thinking, I can't take this time off because my spouse needs this help, which they do. I've have two kids myself. That's hard as heck. You need that reprieve and stuff. But if you're not able to give that reprieve and able to help, how did that work? How did you... How was it, like, sure there were some really tough days between you and your wife because you didn't have anything in your tank? How did that how did that look? and how did you get out of that?
1: yeah, it it's an interesting time because it it just coincided with so with my social work study, I was studying at nighttime, studying on weekends, pretty much outside of work. That's what I was doing, and it was putting a lot of pressure on my wife. To, to look after the kids and manage the household. And I'm trying to lock myself in this, in this very room, you know, with my earphones on trying to block out the world so I can focus. And it was taking me longer and longer to study because I was so burnt out. The brain fog. It just coincided with a gap in my study where I, uh, cause I was studying part-time over, you know, this degree while I was working full-time and it just, it, I finished the semester, which I basically just dragged myself through And again, I'm talking like to the point where I'm doing so much study, getting distinctions and high distinctions. Like, you know, I was doing exceptionally well, um, but I felt like I needed to study so much to get those grades. And I wasn't grades driven, but it was also a reflection. If I didn't get those Ds or HDs, I'd be like, Simon, what are you doing? And so it just coincided with a gap. So I had six month gap where I didn't have to study that next semester, which was fantastic. So that kind of alleviated the stress of studying. Um, but each day we had to take each day as it came, and and so there was counselling involved. So I went to see the social worker, and that was an ongoing process. Every fortnight, um, pretty much throughout that period, I had to. There was there was days where it was fine, but there was other days where I had to do, you know, you have to be a parent and you have to be a partner. So I had to get myself off the couch and, and do things. But what I was doing is finding with them, with working with the kids is, is, and it was still COVID as well. So, we, you know, we'd came out of lockdown then we went back into lockdown. So you, this was like a lot of fluctuation happening. Um, But I found, when I just started working with mindfulness and I started to discover things like being in the moment, being grounded in the moment, I had these little pockets of joy, which I had for a long time hadn't had. And so I'd grab onto those and go, you know what, Like I'm, I'm just here playing Lego with my son or just we'd often go outside and pick grasshoppers off the lemon and lime tree and move them from the backyard to the front to a tree in the front yard so they wouldn't kill our lemon and lime tree. And things like that were became things that I would look forward to. Or going for a walk with my with, you know, changing my music from heavy metal if I'm feeling angry to just something calming like Jack Johnson, acoustic, slow um, things like that. But a lot of it was day by day. And my wife, she she's she's an amazing person very she's very different to me i'm a very emotionally driven person she's very rational you know she's the opposite complete opposite to me i don't know how we got together but it's so good that we did because she just gets through things and so she knew from my history because she's the one who first encouraged me to go get help in the first place this wasn't new for me it was new that i was you know sitting at home but and she also knew the back pain so the back pain still going on and, and and she knew that i couldn't walk a lot or do much so we're navigating that so it was it was just day by day some days I'd be good some days I'd be rubbish and just sit on the couch um and we just managed around that but i think more of the work came after the fact and when i did get better and i was back at work you know i'd gone through the counseling process was sustaining that and that was a, the biggest challenge and that was where we both worked really well together and around finding joy. So I essentially started, it's interesting. I started mindful men, this social media stuff and finding joy. I'm like, what's, what does that look like as an adult? Cause once you become an adult, you know, you go from all these joyful things that you do as a young person or as a child, you've got all these dreams, but then you become an adult and you just go on autopilot for a lot of your life. You just get through. And particularly when you become a parent as well, like you just.
0: Your needs go yeah. on the back burner. <laughs>
1: and particularly as a dad as well a lot of dads feel this like they feel like they're the last person in behind the dog or the cat or whatever that gets their needs met and and this becomes normal and so I feel like during this period it'd be me unmasking this mental health thing and starting to to look at life as how can I live more authentically and come off autopilot this was a big thing during my recovery so finding the joy is is on this computer. I've got I've got a Mac computer, and there's a program called GarageBand. And you know I like playing music. I've got a guitar in the background, but GarageBand gave me this. You know, there's just music on there that you can loop together.
0: Nice. And what I
1: found was I just started looping music together. I've never been a DJ. I'm not a DJ or any good at it. But I felt like it for two hours or so. Me just playing with one song, putting different tracks together, looping it and then publishing it. And I I started publishing it on YouTube. I started a YouTube account just to, to finish the job. And it just felt so good. And and there was no, no words. And it was just, it was just music. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like this was so good. And so this starting to spark creativity again, that I hadn't had since I was in high school.
0: Yeah. And we lose that as parents so much. And so we do put everything in, and it, it is hard to take that time and space and then you're usually so exhausted to do mm-hmm. that, especially when you're back at work. So I'm really curious about you being back at work. So you did say you had different management. So for some people too, going back to work could be changing positions to be in a different department where there is, but you stayed in the same department. So you still mm-hmm. had a lot of the same stressors you were did you still have the same kpis like how did you manage that at work so that work didn't burn you out again
1: and that was a key thing when i was doing the counseling i said how can i stop this from happening again and my social worker said you will see this coming a million miles away and you will put the stoplight on much sooner so Mm -hmm. that you don't burn out and so It was a graduated return for work. And I was very lucky that uh, this happened because I know other people in the workplace didn't have this support through their management lines. But essentially, it was me coming back to work with reduced KPIs. It was like, okay, when you come back, it's just going to be you finding your feet again. And then eventually, we'll give you one job and then two jobs and then three jobs and four jobs and so on until you get to full capacity. And it took probably another... You know, it took four to five months to get back to work and there's probably another two to three months to get back to full-time equivalent of what I was doing before. But I was very open. I stayed very open with my managers of how I was tracking. If I was having a rubbish week, I would be, I would be saying, having a meeting and saying, I'm struggling this week, move some of my work. And I was very forthright. I, I was adamant that I wasn't going to let it happen again. And they were very um, supportive of me going through this. And then about six months later, you know, I, was, I was back on track, but then I was fortunate again to have some more leave, but this time it was to do a social work placement. So mm-hmm. I had, as part of my social work degree, I had to do two blocks of 500 hours in a workplace practicing social work skills. And so again, I was lucky because I had my long service leave. So I used my long service leave to go do that. And which was good. It got me out of that environment and, and, experiencing something different and this is where you know I talk about finding mindfulness in my recovery process when I was with my social worker she introduced mindfulness to me acceptance and commitment therapy by Dr Russ Harris and like most blokes I thought oh that's a bit wanky it's a bit hippie I'm not going to do that's a bit girly I don't care about gratitude journals or breath work and all that type of stuff and I parked it and I didn't really do it But then when I came to do my social work placement, I was reintroduced to acceptance and commitment therapy, but from a therapist perspective. Yeah. And I started to to learn more about the theory behind it. And then also I practiced that with the clients that I had in my new caseload, which I had about 10 clients throughout my um, placement period, which is about 15 weeks or so. And every week I would just use these, these mindfulness techniques with the clients. And that was, it goes beyond, you know, gratitude journaling or even finding different ways to, to 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 do gratitude, but also it goes to breath work, but also being more present in the moment. And this was really important for me because in my brain, particularly the OCD aspect of me, I'm thinking about everything else, but where my feet are? Yes. That's... You know, and so, so um... I'd be, yeah, I'd be on a different planet. And so that kind of work. But also I discovered that mindfulness is also about values. It's about looking at your, what your values are and how you can use your values to drive where you want to go in life. And so I started doing a bit of work with that, with the clients that I work with, and I saw their change. I'm like, oh, maybe I could start to do this for me. So I did some of my own work in the background and just really started to embrace mindfulness and this authentic self so that when I finished my placement and I went back to that same old job that I had been in, um, I knew at that point that I needed to leave the public service.
0: Yeah.
1: I just had to work out a way to do it. and but then I got stuck again, and I felt like I was burning out. And this is where I went into a really dark depression because I didn't know how to get out and get into important. social work and so forth, because I always wanted to have a business, so I just had 15 years in a public service. I studied. I did a bachelor's degree like right at the start when I was just out of high school but my social work degree became came as a mature age student so I was more committed as a mature age student I knew what I wanted to do with life and I wanted to be a men's therapist and I wanted to help other guys just not bottle things up for 20 years like I did and I want them to use mindfulness because I discovered mindfulness I'm like actually mindfulness is pretty cool and it's really it's 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 really um you know contemporary practice and, and a lot of people are doing it at the moment. And but how do I do that? And so I fell in this depression because I thought, oh, I'll just I'll get the approvals from work because it's everything in a public service. You need their permission to do anything. And so, you know, I say, I want to start a, a business where I'm doing therapy. Um, can I have your approval to do one day a week and then two days a week. And then gradually I'll stop coming here and I'll just have this other business. And they Initially said yes, but then when it got to the senior managers, they're like, "No, there's too much conflicts of interest." Mm. I'm like, "Okay," and so that that's 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 what knocked me down. I'm like, oh, "How am I going to do this?" Like, I, I don't have money sitting in the bank where I can just leave and and still pay a mortgage, still have the kids go to school and and childcare, and just live essentially. And it came in a in a roundabout way. We had a brand new car on order, a new a Toyota Hilux Ute. And because of COVID, everything was taking longer to come and get shipped in into Australia. And so what we thought was a six-month wait was actually turning into a nine or a 12 or 18-month period. And we, we drew the money out of the mortgage to have this new car because my old car just pretty much was <laughs> struggling to get out the driveway. Um, and I said to my wife, why don't we just... Take the deposit back for the new car, you know, a 60 grand car or whatever it was, and spend half of that on a secondhand car and then put the other half into me starting this business.
0: You found a way. That
1: that would be the mortgage repayments. And so, and surprisingly, my wife is usually the one to reject all my ideas because she's got the rational head on her. But she's like, let's do it. And I'm like, what? so so essentially i took a bit more leave from work and and just trying to get through the depression and because i was having a lot of suicidal ideation as well as part of this and then when i came good i i did it i i and and during that time i was trying to set up the website for my business and and get policies and and processes in place so that i could start work and start advertising and then yeah i had a phone call with my boss my my managers and I basically said I I can't come anymore. I've, I'm I'm going to go do this now, and they they were so happy for me. They like they this was finding me joy again, and I I made this step. So now since August last year, I've been doing the therapy practice, mindful men, and I've never done a business before, and, and I'm finding my feet finally. And and it's interesting because of burnout. I think I'm now in a place where I'm living more authentically. I'm using mindfulness regularly, both with my clients, but for myself as well. I don't see it as a wanky, girly, hippie thing. Um, and now I'm supporting guys every single week in the work that I do to to live more authentically themselves as well. And so it's been an interesting draw. It's it's amazing where I'm at at the moment, but compare it to a couple, only a couple of years ago when I burnt out. I don't think if if burnout didn't happen, I don't know if I'd be here. Doing what I do now. and even as you said earlier, you know having the my for men podcast and sharing the stories, um I, I I see so much value now in just sharing these stories across the world because it could be someone listening who, like me, bottled things up for twenty years and has never got help. and hearing my story or the stories that I have of of the guests that I have on my show as well, it just hopefully inspires them to open up and start you know, come off of autopilot and into a more authentic life.
0: Absolutely. And I just, I really want to recap on what you did say too, is that like you have to get to that point. I want to rephrase that because I don't like that sentence. It's not that you have to get to that point in burnout. Most people wait until they get to that point in burnout. And so you and I are here really trying our best to let people know of the signs so they don't have to wait to where you and I got to before everything crashed. Like my moods were all over the place. I was struggling to handle things with the kids. Um I am surprised my husband is still married to me. I, I mean he, he's the most amazing man, but he couldn't look at me some days and smile because it was smiling the wrong way.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: it is just amazing what the points we get to in Till we're ready to make changes, and there's that fear as well. I mean, you worked in public service, which I'm I'm not sure about Australia, but I'm going to make an assumption that is similar to here, where you have a pension. That if you leave that, you're leaving 15 years of a pension built up, which is scary as hell. And that comfort of knowing the, you have this comfort in knowing how. You already know the bad, you already know the chaos of the job, you already know the bad parts, you know that you have kind of built enough walls up to be able to barely survive, but you know how to barely survive in that environment, that it is scary as heck to take that leap to get out of a place that you're comfortable in. Comfort sucks. Mm. And you just with so many taking that leap or even, I wouldn't even tell people to take the leap first. I would say, try to get out of burnout first, because you may find that joy again for your job. And you may find that some of that was the burnout and all of the hormones, the anxiety, the depression, all those things that come along with burnout because the hormones being off and your body being so dysregulated that you're, you're so Um, critical and frustrated by everything around you, that once those things go away, you might get that joy back. You might also be able to switch positions where you are into a place that does suit you better and you enjoy and love that more. So I would never encourage somebody to just leave the job because that's not going to fix burnout. We need to first work on the burnout and then see, okay, is this job continually contributing to this burnout? And have I exhausted all of my, my um, options in this job to find other areas and avenues in order to continue in this job and find my joy, or do I need to leave it? And if I need to leave it, then you start figuring out where. I know for first responders, blue light leavers—that's what they do—is help first responders um, transition to other careers. But I would never suggest somebody does that until they've worked on their burnout and got there. Mm. So you taking that step is huge because so many people sit in the crap continually and then continue this cycle of burnout.
1: Yeah I was I was very fortunate throughout the burnout process because the first time it happened I had so much I had six months worth of sick leave
0: yeah over a 15 not year
1: career. Did. so I could take that and not worry about the mortgage. And then the second time, and, you know, and then at the end, I, I raised the car thing because we often we live in a world where we're trying to keep up with the Joneses. Yes. You know, you know, and there's people in our neighbourhood who have the new cars and the boats and the caravans and all that type of stuff. And we don't have, you know, we just keep a modest life. But then for some reason I wanted this brand new car and and but as it turned out, like reflecting on that moment going, do I stay in this job and have this car, the car I like, the job I don't like? Now, in saying that, I loved the the working in the disability space. I think I met so many people both in the agency but also the clients with amazing stories. I love that aspect, just not the KPI aspect of the work yeah. and the, str- the systems internally uh, that was so rigid you couldn't change them. And that's the, uh, that's the aspect of the work I like, the people I loved, because like the, the the stories I heard were just amazing. And it goes right back to the start where you talk about I became a social worker because so I love helping people. In that job, I wasn't a social worker. I was a student social worker, but a 15-year career in the public service. I still love yeah, that human side of it. And I think that's what got me so down was that I could see improvements where could, improvements could be made, but nobody wanted to come along for the ride with me. And, but yeah, coming back to the car is like, I'm like, why do I need this consumerist thing? Like, why do I care if I've got a brand new car? I've been driving around this beat up old Corolla for years. (laughs) Like why now does it matter? And it's so fortunate, again, fortunate that I had the money there. I mean, yes, we did draw it from the mortgage, but I had the money there to pay the mortgage while I got a secondhand car and started the business. Now, as a business owner, then Fast forward a few months into the end of last year and the the clients weren't coming in. I thought, oh, I do men's mental health. Everyone says that this is so needed. I thought as soon as I would do a few Facebook ads or Google ads, the phone would be ringing off the hook. Didn't happen. And so I spent months just you know, scratching my head. I was probably focusing on different things that I shouldn't have focused on. Like instead of networking, I was focusing more on what I was doing in the back end of my business. Which doesn't lead to clients coming through the door. I thought it did. But then, what I was doing at the end of last year, I was podcasting a lot. And now I'm a podcaster myself, I've got the month i in podcast, but I was podcasting a lot, I think, as a way of trying to build brand recognition. I thought I'd get on as many podcasts as possible, I'd record as many as possible. I've got all this downtime. But what was happening is I was burning out again and and I was trying to build up the clientele I was trying to do the podcast trying to do all the social I was trying to do it all as a as a new business owner the shiny parts kind were starting to rub off and I was I felt like I was burning out again to a point where I canceled probably 30 podcasts either me as a guest or me as a host and I recognized that was me going I'm I pulling up the brakes now before I hit burnout again, because now I'm a business owner. I'm the only one in my business. If I don't go to work, I don't get paid. I don't have sick leave anymore. I don't have annual leave. I don't have the long service leave. I have nothing. So, so i have now in a place where I have to actively manage my well-being and it's interesting because when I did that, when I told all these people that I couldn't do these episodes, I was very upfront and saying, I'm having a mental health situation at the moment.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'd never done that before. And I think this is me being more authentic with my life and going, you know what? I'm not going to hide this. I'm not just going to say I'm busy or something's come up. I'm going to say I'm struggling with my mental health. This is the whole purpose of Mindful Men is to to be open about our mental health. And and the the feedback and all the responses I got was saying, Simon, thanks so much. I'm so glad you you're taking time for you and i wish you all the well and no not one person said you know how to how to go at me saying oh you oh, maybe one person but you know but that's life but i I think that shows in itself if as guys and and also when i did that presentation back at work it was like as guys we bottle things up because we feel a lot of shame and stigma around talking about our mental health we we're ingrained socially and I've got a, another story for that. If you want to do another episode around we're socially constructed to to mask everything and bottle things up and not cry and not show emotions because it's not manly. And so, but me just doing these things and living more authentically and saying, Hey, oh yeah, my, I'm struggling with my mental health is me a, normalizing discussions around mental illness, just like we do our physical health. Because if if I if I said to you, oh, I've got a sore leg, oh, I'm gonna go to the physio, I'm gonna go to Cairo, I'm gonna go to the doctor and get it fixed. Yeah, no worries, cool. If I said to you, oh, I'm gonna- I'm having a mental health challenges, I am gonna go see a counselor. A lot of people go, I don't want to have that conversation. Yeah. But the more we talk about it, like on a podcast or in our day-to-day life, the more normal it feels. And then that the more normal it feels, the less shame and stigma there is around mental health discussions. And so now I just do it like if I'm struggling, I'll just say, Hey, I'm not coming to this because I'm you know, I'm not I'm not feeling great mentally.
0: Yeah, and owning up to it. So From what I'm hearing and what you said as well, though, is you did realize that your job was um, a big contributor to your burnout, but transitioning to another career, one that you love, one that you have way more control over, did not mean that there were no more risks to your burnout. Mm -hmm. It means that you still have habits. You still have different personality traits. Um, Many of us that do get into burnout are are very goal-oriented. We really love to push. We set the bar high for ourselves. That even if you are going to transition to another career, don't go into that blindly. Go into that understanding that you are going to have certain traits that you're going to have to notice in yourself, certain habits that you do in order to make sure that you're not repeating some of the patterns that happened in your prior career in order to decrease and mitigate your burnout. But burnout is because of our personalities. I think burnout is it's going to be a lifelong process. I know for me as well, exactly what you're saying with podcast interviews. I where I found you was from a link on a Facebook group. And I I have so many podcast interviews booked right now, but I did exactly, I started saying, oh my gosh, so many people are booking in that I started booking people in in June and July now, and I'm only doing one day a month. So I'm like, Mm. nope, one day a month, getting them in. And I've got my podcast interviews for the whole month done in that day. Whereas what I did this month was I put them all over the place. They're all over the map. And I'm like, ooh, this is gonna burn me out. So once we see things, we have to make those decisions. Once we see that things are affecting our family and as you're saying with therapy as well i have one of my kids with anxiety um perfectionism all of that like he is in therapy because of his perfectionism is through the roof and he has these rage outbursts and and anger which have so decreased with his therapy it's been amazing and my other child is the one that everybody's like oh we love having him around he's this like right but I'm, he's starting with therapy this summer and I've talked to him, I'm like, look, there's no real big issues that we see in you right now, but I want you to develop a relationship with a therapist because me as a parent, I'm going to do the best that I can, but I'm still going to make mistakes. And I want you to have a therapist around when I make mistakes or when other people, you experience things with other people as you're growing up and you're going through puberty and all of these things, that you have somebody that you know that you can go to. So you're not spending like for you 20 years, I was almost 30 years in between my burnouts. um, You're not spending so much time struggling in between that you actually have somebody to go to. And it's so interesting, the difference in mental states as well. Cause I'm like, what do you think of that? And he's like, mommy, you have so many great ideas. And I'm like, like it was not the reaction I was expecting, (laughs) but it's so amazing how, it's becoming therapy is becoming just a regular word for our kids. And for us in our generation, it's so not that it's this shame stigma, but it's it's like it is a piece of that puzzle when it comes to burn it. Like,
1: yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I loved how you said around taking different personalities because you know, the OCD in in my life is perfectionism. It's is everything getting just right. And so what I've done is through my social work degree, they always say, "Oh, what's your, your what's your practice framework? What's the underlying thing that makes you you as a social worker?" And during my social work, I discovered this concept around called wabi sabi, and it's the beauty and imperfection. Mm. And so, even with my psychologist, when I was going through that dark depression just before I started Mindful Man, he said, "Simon, you with your perfectionism, you have to learn how to fail." and what it feels like because I, my whole life is driven by doing things perfectly so I don't get in trouble or so that bad things don't happen. And so I'm really embracing, particularly my business, this concept around Wabi Sabi and that there is beauty and imperfection and, in fact, it's a good thing for things to be imperfect. So wherever I get the opportunity, and this includes my social media and and all that t- and the podcast and, and everything is... You know what? If it's not 100%, it's okay. The world's not going to crumble because when I keep trying to make everything 100%, that's when my world crumbles. Yeah. So, so yeah.
0: Yeah. And I've learned as well with my son that I have to vocalize my failures, vocalize my mistakes because he somehow doesn't see that my <laughs> husband or I ever make mistakes. So I have to say, oh, guess what I did today? And I have to own up to it in front of my kids and make sure that he's seeing that I'm failing and I'm making a mistake in things as well. And what I'm doing to fix that or correct it or work on it, or I'm just like, eh, whatever, you know, just Mm. to, to let them go. Amazing. Well, Simon, this has been such a great conversation. I'm so grateful. If before we go, I'm going to ask you one question, but before I ask you the question, how can people find you?
1: Yeah, so I'm pretty active on social media. So I'm on pretty much most social media platforms um, under Mindful Men. Um, yeah, mindfulmen.oz is generally how I how I put that to differentiate me from every other mindful man in the world. Um, but yeah, primarily my website as well. So it's www.mindful-men.com.au. That links to my social media, that links to the Mindful Men podcast as well. Um, but it also for Australian-based um, people who are interested in working with me, they can access my information about my therapy services there. But I do primarily only work in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, the, the social media and the podcast is with guests across the world, just like yourself. And, and I think it's amazing talking to people across the world. And, and it's interesting how even though we're separated by a vast seas or vast land, that our stories are very similar yeah. Um, and I've talked to people from all over the world around things like OCD, depression, burnout, um, addiction, all that type of stuff. But it all there's very similar stories in, in everybody's, you know, journeys, which is really cool to hear. Um, but also to project to the world and show everyone that they don't have to live in silence. Cause for me, I've, you know, and many people who live with mental health issues they think that the only person in the world experiencing that particular issue, like burnout, for example, they, when you go through burnout, you feel like nobody's ever experienced all this stuff before, but so many people have. So vocalizing it, I guess, increases awareness, but also increases the, the this knowledge that we're not alone and that. There is help out there as well.
0: Amazing. Yeah. So we will put all of the links of your social media down below and I was going to ask you, but I think you may have answered it just now. But if you want to add to that, I was just going to ask you, like, what advice do you have for somebody that is in burnout?
1: If you're in burnout, I think um, I always love this Tony Robbins quote. It's like change happens when the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change. So if whether it's burnout or any mental health situation or not even a mental health situation, it could be a relationship issue, substance addiction, uh, you know, anything disability it's just when you have that light bulb moment you go you know what I I can't keep doing this that's when great change happens and that's when you're connecting with your friends or your family or a therapist or a GP or or a coach or something is when that happens recognize it reflect on it and just go for it because you know there's no point as you said sticking in a job that where you feel comfortable for example if you're just miserable so it's looking at the options. Looking at yourself first, going, okay, how can I improve my my position at the moment? Is it through better self care? Is it through therapy? For some people, it's medication. Whatever it is, do that work first, and then you know, branch out. You know, is it? Do you need to change jobs or careers or do some study? Do you just need a vacation? Some people just need to get away. Hey, when's the last time you did that? You know, and we've had a lot of turmoil from COVID the last couple of years. That's now eased. The world's open again. And so I think it's just around recognizing that need to change when it happens and then, yeah, exploring it as we've talked about, exploring what that looks like in a rational way, not just jumping headfirst into something different. You've got to actually think about it and put the two you know, points together.
0: Yeah, and as I talk about a lot, there's so many different stressors that we're experiencing. I deal with all the physical, the hormones, the gut, the sleep, uh, all of that. That's what I specifically deal with. But as I speak about a lot in this podcast, is there's so many different, you have your social stressors, your different physical stressors, nutritional stressors, which I work on those ones, but then we have all the mental, there's just so many different stressors, your toxins, um, which I can dive into that as well with some. So there's so many different aspects and where somebody starts is where, wherever you feel that is the best place for you to start or you want to start is the place to start definitely and slowly working your way through all of the stressors as as you're able
1: yeah and, and the thing to add to that is just it it just takes as long as it takes yes so it's not a race it's for some people i've heard stories oh they within three months they're okay mm-hmm. other people like me it's a, it's a it's a lifelong journey it's it's yes. just it, it takes as long as it takes and that's okay yeah. Um, it's just about finding, as you said, you know, finding what works for you, and then going with that. And you know, you can only just do your best as well. Don't. I always like this concept around one step at a time, or just trying to be one percent better today than you were yesterday. It's just it's a yes. slow thing. You're not going to climb a mountain in one day. It takes each step at a time, and just focus on that step, and then you'll be on a, on a great pathway.
0: And acknowledge that step once you've gone past it, <laughs> instead of skipping to the end goal. Yes.
1: Definitely. Yes.
0: All right. <laughs> Thank you so much. And um, I know everybody, this has been such a great episode for everybody to listen to. And everybody go check out Simon's podcast, go check out his social media. And um, yeah, thank him for coming on here.
1: Andy, thanks so much. I really enjoyed it.
0: My pleasure.